Virgil has just changed the explanations and even the narrative structure of texts from Ovid, from Lucid, and from Stasius. And now guess what? He's going to change his own text. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we are in the 20th canto of Inferno. We are amongst the fortune tellers or soothsayers in the fourth pocket of the circle of fraud, the fourth evil pouch, the fourth malabolgia. We are in the middle of Virgil's single longest speech in all of comedy. We have had Virgil pass through a rewriting of passages from Ovid, as I said, Stasius, and Lucan, and we are now about to continue on in a most shocking turn of events. So here's the passage, a long one, lines 52 through 99 of Canto 20 of Inferno. And that woman who covers her breasts with her unkempt hair so that you can't see them, and whose hairy bits then look as if they're on the wrong side? She was Manto who searched many a land before finally she made a home in the place I was born. I hope it pleases you to hear me out a bit on this subject. After her father had exited this life and Bacchus's city had been reduced to servitude, she wandered around the world for a long time. Way up there, in beautiful Italy, there's a lake at the foot of those Alps that border Germany on up above the Tyrol. That lake is called Lago di Garda. I believe a thousand springs, maybe more bathe those parts up there, between Garda, Val Comunico, and Penino, and all that water eventually pools in the lake. In the middle of it, there's an island. If the bishops of Trent, Brescia, and Verona ever went there, they might give it their blessings. Pescaria is situated there. It's a beautiful and strong armory made to hold back the Brescians and the Bergamese. It sits down at the lowest part on the shoreline. All the water that Lago di Garda cannot contain in its bosom cascades down and flows out to become a river that courses through green pastures. At the point where the river leaves its source, not far from Lago di Garda, it's called Mincio, all the way down to Governor, where it joins the Po. It doesn't have long to go before it joins the lowlands, where it fans out into a marsh in the flatlands, and where it becomes a bit fetid in the summer. When the cruel virgin passed that way, she saw the land in the middle of the fens, all devoid of inhabitants and agricultural works. There, to avoid any contact with men, she stopped with her servants, practiced her arts, lived out her life, and died an empty corpse. After all that, the people around that place settled in that very spot, a stronghold because of the swamp that encircled it. They constructed a city over her dead bones and called it Mantua without any further augury because she had first chosen the spot. There were more people there once than now, before the idiot Casalodi felt the force of Pinamante's treachery. So take care. If you should ever hear any other account of the origins of my city, don't let those tales turn the truth into a fraud.
And that is Virgil's long explanation for the founding of his hometown, Mantua, or close to his hometown, near where he was born. As I told you way earlier in the podcast, it's as if Virgil is from Naperville, Illinois, but claims to be from Chicago when he keeps talking about Mantua, but okay, we'll give it to him. He's here explaining the founding of his own city, Mantua. The problem is he's contradicting his own work, the Aeneid. So let's get into this passage. It's fabulously fun to try to deal with. Isn't this great to be able to do that? I'm sorry. I'm just overwhelmed sometimes by how much fun it is to be able to sit with the Inferno, all of comedy, but we're just in Inferno now. Unbelievable amounts of just great intellectual and here I'm going to argue emotional fun. Let's look at the passage. Let's start with an overall impression. The overall impression here is that we have left hell. We have gone way up to the Alps. We've gone to Lago di Garda. And you should know that in Dante's text, it is always called Benaco. But he means what we now say as Lago di Garda. And so in order to give it a contemporary ring, I went ahead and just brought it up into the to our contemporary moment by calling the lake Lago di Garda. Listen, we've left hell. We're out in open spaces, verdant fields, green pastures. It's all lovely. There may be a little malaria going on in the fens in the summer when it gets a little fetid, but there's islands, it's fertile, there's crops, there's people, there's agricultural works, there's strongholds. We are a long way from hell. We are in open, airy space. I think the poet knows what he's about, not only for the complex irony that we're going to discuss, but also because we need a break. We have been 20 cantos in dire circumstances, in vivid punishments amongst the dam where doom is around us at all moments. And here in the 20th canto, we get a bit of fresh air. We get islands and waters and rivers, and it suddenly feels open. Any writer knows this. You have to pace what you're doing. You can't constantly keep it focused on the doom that is happening in the story. If you keep it focused on the doom of the story, you're going to lose the emotional resonance of that doom. Dante shows himself to be a mature writer because he knows that at this point, I need a break. And I need to hear about open fields and open waters and lakes and air and agricultural works. I need to know that there's still a world going on up above me. Okay, nice writerly technique. What writers are supposed to do, pace out their stories and give readers breaks in the space. But there's more going on here than just that. Let's talk about what else is in the passage. This is not the story of Manto, (laughs) the Aeneid, by any stretch of the imagination. There are two major changes, maybe three. One, Manto doesn't necessarily ever leave 
Greece. She is the daughter of Tiresias. We've already seen Tiresias in this passage. And as far as we know from any other text, she doesn't ever leave Greece. She stays there. But this gives us the sense that she's been on a voyage after her father, that would be Tiresias, had exited this life and Bacchus City had been reduced to servitude. We're back to the Thebes and Athens again and the destruction of Thebes and the siege of it and all of that that we've already discussed. She wandered around the world for a long time. That's what I want to focus on. She wandered around the world for a long time. This is the first time that someone has gone on a voyage that we didn't know about, sort of. We've already seen one walk. Virgil's walk to the bottom of hell as he's sent there by Erichtho. This is the second time there's a made-up story of a voyage, and this anticipates a big made-up story of a voyage that's coming our way. Oh, Ulysses, I see you ahead of us. This is the precursor of a story of a voyage that is made up whole cloth by Dante. Manto, as I say, we don't know that she ever leaves Greece. In fact, the city of Mantua is founded by her son, Ancus, in the Aeneid. Ancus, her son, is the one who travels to the Italian peninsula and founds the city of Mantua. Ancus is the child of Manto and the river god of the Tiber River. So she has had a son by the river god of the Tiber River. And the claim, at least in the Aeneid, is that the inhabitants of Mantua, through Ancus on down, are diviners, that they have the gift of soothsaying. And you'll notice in this passage, none of that happens. Ancus is completely written out. After we get through all of that beautiful wandering around and the lakes and the streams and the springs and the rivers and what's all situated up there, beautiful, strong armories and downflows, the water, and it comes to the lowlands. And then it says, when the cruel virgin passed that way, cruel, that's actually a pickup, not from Virgil's Aeneid, but from Stasius, who refers to her as a harsh or hard virgin. When that cruel virgin passed that way, she saw the land in the middle of the fens, all devoid of inhabitants and agricultural works, there to avoid any contact with men. She stopped with her servants, practiced her arts, we assume that's her divination, lived out her life and died in an empty corpse. <laughs> no, not according to the Aeneid. According to the Aeneid, it is her son. She does have descendants, and her son founds this city of Mantua. And after that, apparently, all the people got to together, who she'd kind of driven out of this fertile spot in the middle of the fens. They came back. I guess they'd been afraid of her and her arts. They came back and built a city of her dead bones without any augury. They didn't do it by divination. And they just did it because she chose the spot first. In this passage, Virgil has done violence to his own text by claiming that Manto doesn't have any descendants, by emphasizing her virginity, which not so much, by claiming that she founded Mantua, not so much, and by claiming that there's no divination amongst the inhabitants. It's implied in the Aeneid that there is. So Virgil has done violence to his own story of the founding of his own hometown, 
sort of, Mantua in this retelling in Inferno. What, besides giving us airspace, could possibly be going on here? Let's talk about what most Italian and continental critics say. In the Middle Ages, Virgil was often thought of as a wizard or a magician, somebody who was, at least in medieval folklore, connected with the blacker arts. There are reasons for this. We'll get to them later in comedy. But let's just say now, in folkloric tradition, Virgil was sometimes seen as a magician, this same writer of the high Aeneid was seen as a magician in some way. And most Italian critics claim that Dante puts this whole story here and rewrites the founding of Mantua essentially to save Virgil. That is, to pull Virgil away from the notion of being a magician. And so the story of the founding of Mantua is basically that, sure, this Manto wandered all around. Sure, she may have been an augur. She may have practiced all kinds of divination, but the people who ultimately founded the town over her bones had nothing to do with her, nor had they anything to do with divination, which means that Virgil himself cannot be a magician. Therefore, Virgil is not damned in this circle of hell. Therefore, Virgil can be put up in limbo amongst the virtuous pagans. That's the way most Italians and Italian critics for centuries have seen this passage. American critics and British critics see it another way. They see it as not saving Virgil, but smacking him. And I will confess to you that I see it a bit as smacking Virgil. That is, Virgil himself comes out and rewrites the Aeneid. And the reason that everyone is so intent in UK and US tradition in seeing this as a smack on Virgil is the very or the very last three lines of the passage. So take care. If you should ever hear any other account of the origins of my city, don't let those tales turn the truth into a fraud. <laughs> There's that word fraud there in which Virgil has fraudulently recast his own passage. And the only place I would ever hear another account of the origins of his city is from his own poem. And so many critics now, especially modern critics, see this passage as a smack at Virgil. That is, Dante has twisted Virgil's head on his neck and forced him to rewrite his own story from the Aeneid, thus making us see the Aeneid as a lie. Because if we're not supposed to trust any other account of the founding of Mantua, then we can't trust the Aeneid. Then it itself is fraudulent. And so there's a backhanded smack at Virgil that goes on in this passage in which Dante Dante is getting his poetic master even to rewrite his own work and even at the end to essentially call it fraudulent. But maybe there's a way to thread the needle between these two interpretations. Maybe this is what writers do. Writers have to take on their forefathers. They have to take them on. They have to outdo them or warp them. And furthermore, writers warp other texts to create their own texts, especially in the Middle Ages. This still happens now. People still 
let's say, work with the novel form in order to write their own novels. It still is today. You're writing on the back of other writers. But in the Middle Ages, texts were seen as authoritative because they could build on the backs of other texts. Dante's text is building off the Aeneid off the Pharsalia, off Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's building off all these and, of course, the Bible. Oh, and, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. So, lots of text and Aristotle. Oh, I forgot that one. Lots of texts that are being used as a basis for this text itself. And writers eventually come to the position that they get to play fast and loose with the texts they base their own texts on, particularly in a medieval context. I would argue that we're being set up for this. We have watched Virgil play fast and loose with Amphiaraeus, with Tiresias, and with Arons. Now we're watching Virgil play fast and loose with his own text, and Dante behind him playing fast and loose with Virgil's text. Because in the end, you must find a way to write your text, even if you're writing it on the back of other texts. And I would say that this entire canto devoted to soothsaying is so much about how you find the way to write what you need to write, because ultimately what you hope to write is predictive. It's predictive of the human condition. For Dante, it's predictive of what happens to you after you take your last breath. And in order to get to that predictive voice, that way in which writing can elucidate the human condition by saying what will or would happen to someone in this situation, in that way that writing itself is augury or sorcery or casting spells. In that way, you have to find your way through former texts. You have to find out how to deal with them, and you have to work your way through them. This canto, to me, is a brilliant and complex ironic statement about the anxiety of influence, or perhaps more specifically, about how to deal with your forefathers, in Dante's case with Virgil, and Virgil with his near contemporaries, in the case of Stasius, Ovid, and Lucan. How to deal with the other writers around you on which you base your text in order to get said what you want to say, which is ultimately something predictive or diagnostic, we would now say in the modern tradition, about the human condition, and particularly Dante, who is all about future-telling in the entire comedy. I would say that there is another hint about what's going on in this passage, and it occurs at line 61. And let me go back and read it from the top. And that woman who covers her breasts with her unkempt hair so that you can't see them, and whose hairy bits then look as if they're on the wrong side, he's talking, of course, about her pubic hair, and that because her head is turned around, it doesn't look like it's in the right place. She was Manto who searched many a land before finally she made a home in the place I was born. I hope it pleases you to hear me out a bit on this subject. After her father had exited this life and Bacchus' city had been reduced to servitude, she wandered around the world for a long time. Way up there, and this is the key, way up there in beautiful Italy, there's a lake. 
it's right there that we might find an emotional center. Remember our emotional center of Canto 19, beautiful San Giovanni. What if beautiful Italy is here the emotional center of the passage? And that is that the founding myths of Italy are not corrupted by sin. And you have to understand that Italy isn't anything when Virgil and Dante are talking about it. Sure, it's a peninsula generally thought of as north of Rome and south of the Alps, not the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, but generally thought of as Rome north to the German border with the Alps. And the notion here that it is a unified whole and that it contains a gorgeous landscape and that out of this gorgeous landscape pour rivers that bring great agricultural fecundity, that bring great wealth, that bring beautiful green pastures, we may here find the emotional center of the passage. That it, that is, that it's not to save Virgil, and it's not to say how Dante is dealing with his forebearers, but it is to say that Italy, <laughs> there isn't such a thing, but Italy is gorgeous. That Italy is founded without divination, that the founding of Italy is something that happens because of its plenty, because of its vast green spaces, and that out of this beautiful land, without any recourse to any kind of foul, dark arts, there can arise a beautiful single thing. It's a curiously, we would now say, nationalistic nudge inside the passage itself. It's often overlooked by commentators, but I would argue that it might in fact be the motivation for the passage as a whole. Italy itself is a place of great beauty, great wealth, great history, and that history itself is pure, is not driven by what in Christian parlance would be the dark arts. Let's just say two more things about this passage. Which way are these people walking? I'm serious. You know their heads are turned away and turned around to their backs. So which way are they walking? Durling thinks that they're walking backwards. That is, Dante and Virgil see their faces and that they're walking along backwards. But that seems to be contradicted by earlier information in the passage, which says that they can't see forward because in their life they always tried to see forward, which seems to mean that they're walking forward with their heads turned around to their back. Believe it or not, this is a oft commented on problem in the passage. Which way do these guys walk? Think about back to the beginning of this canto. They get to the top of the arch that goes over this evil pocket. Dante says, I saw people coming around the curve. So clearly for a minute, the pouch itself is empty. And now people come around the curve toward them. How are they walking? 
are they facing them? If they're facing them, then they're walking backwards. If they're not facing them, which is what I think, they're instead walking forward with their heads turned around backward as a contrapasso punishment on their own desire to see too far forward in their own lives, then you've been set up from the beginning. Because remember that opening passage when Dante says that they were crying and their heads are turned around back so that their tears course down the cracks of their butts? Remember that bit? Yeah, how would he know that? If he's looking at the backs of their heads as they come toward him, if he's looking... <laughs> oh, so great. If he's looking at them, how does he know where their tears are going? And maybe you say, well, they passed under the bridge. It doesn't seem to indicate that. It seems like we're watching them come toward us and we're not watching them now from the back. You've been set up from the beginning of this passage to understand that there are all kinds of complex ironies. Donate is too good a poet to somehow misvisualize the scene. It's not misvisualized. In fact, it's set there to give you problems because he's signaling to you all through this that things are being turned on their head, turned around backwards, including passages from Lucan, from Ovid, from Stasis. How often can I say this? From Virgil, including those passages. Everything is being turned around backwards, and it's impossible in the end to say what's what. If they're walking forwards, then it explains how he sees their faces crying down onto their butts. If they're walking the correct way, that, that is, they're walking forward with their feet, but their heads are turned around to the back, then how would anyone know who they are? How could you tell who their faces are? How does Virgil know? In a wild twist of fate, the entire passage is twisted. So that you know from the very get-go, this is the problem of predicting the future, and this is the problem of dealing with writing. In the end, you can turn everything on its head until you make people lose their own minds trying to figure it out. How much fun. See what I'm telling you? How much fun. And one more thing before we pass on. It's that last little bit of contemporary history. Remember, he gets all the way down through the passage and says they constructed a city over dead bones. They called it Mancha without any further augury uh, because she had first chosen the spot. And that's that, you know, I mean, they didn't call it Mancha because they were augurs or because they were sorcerers, diviners. They just did it because she'd first chosen the spot. And then we get three lines of contemporary history. There were more people there once than now before the idiot Casalodi felt the force of Pinamonte's treachery. What he's talking about are events from 1291. Alberto of Casalode was a Guelph ruler from Brescia. He had come to Mantua to be the ruler, and he was not exactly welcomed into town as the new guy from another town who was going to rule over Mantua. Over time, he was tricked by this fellow, Penamante de Buonacolosi. He was tricked by him, a Ghibelline, essentially into withdrawing all of his support so that Penamante then took up with a bunch of the rabble-rousers and formed an open rebellion against Casalode. There was basically an internecine war inside the town. It didn't do much 
Mantua any good, to say the least. This little bit may seem uh, as if it's gratuitously inserted in here, but I think it's important to remember that in all of this beautiful Italy stuff, Dante has not left behind the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict that is tearing Italy apart, that is tearing his homeland apart. And there is no Italy, as we now know it. So tearing the Italian peninsula apart, maybe there's a hope of a homeland, but it is a far removed hope given papal power, given Holy Roman emperor power, giving French monarch power. It's a very far remote hope. And here in the middle of this gorgeously evocative agrarian, dare we even say it, romantic vision of Italy and the lakes and the pools and the Alps and the fertile land, we're reminded at the very end that Italy is still torn up by political strife. Maybe its founding myths are pure, but its current situation is a bloodfest. That's a lot to say about a very difficult passage in Canto 20. We could go on and on about this passage. Many have. I debated whether I should divide this up into pieces. You might want to go back and read the passage again because it is an extraordinarily strange, evocative, open, airy bit of poetic landscape set down in a very dark and dire canto of which we have more to go because we haven't yet got to the end of this thing so subscribe to this podcast come back next time let's finish it out we've come through all the classical figures we're about to move out into the current day soothsayers and virgil's gonna round it all out with well a little bit of astrology because how else would you end a canto about soothsaying? I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.